Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. All right, more than way back. We're recording. Peak Speak, lockdown edition. Yeah, I'm recording from my house from the first time in like a really long time, actually. Yeah, to stipulate, you are locked down, not Canberra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, this is what I get for supporting my lifters by traveling for a meet that would used to be known as nationals and now isn't. Um, I am currently in house arrest, I think I prefer oh, no. to refer to it as house arrest. Uh, yeah, uh, I've been allowed, I'm technically allowed out of my house for one hour of exercise a day, and so far I've managed to basically spend half an hour getting as far away from my house as possible and then realizing that I'm probably more than half or a, half an hour away from my house and having to leg it back to my house to see if I can make it in an hour. Um, it's all it's, it's all self-monitored, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm I'm just following the rules because I'm not fuck with. Yeah. Uh, but I uh, you know, I also don't think I'm going to be a particularly concerning problem because it's i wasn't in any of the contact locations or anything like that in brisbane i just happened to have been in brisbane and so the act has mm. just done the uh the right thing and made it all mirror that so i'm out of lockdown on sunday regardless of what happens in queensland because that'll have been two weeks which is great nice well you know who i blame i blame the government um, i think that's a pretty safe uh safe point of blame at this point Oh dear. Anyway, I don't want to talk about COVID. COVID's fucking boring. No, me neither. Uh, let's talk yes. about coffee and Prism and how you can get 10% off by using the code PeakSpeak. You certainly can. I have been ridiculously over-caffeinated for the last several days because I'm not used to working within about 15 steps of my coffee machine. So procrast- pro- uh, pro-caffeination has happened a lot in my Amazing. last couple of days. Like, oh, let me do that bit of work. No, let's just make a bunch of coffee first and then get really caffeinated and not get any work done. It's great. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so let's get straight into things because we're on a little bit of a time constraint budget restriction today. Okay. <laughs> remember water restrictions? Yeah. Remember, wow, remember four, four, four minute showers? Yeah, I've never really had a problem with taking super long showers, but... Mm. So restrictions. What a crazy time. I developed a to go all ADHD and completely change the subject. I developed a habit during water restrictions of like turning off the water when I actually scrubbed myself to not just have the water running against the wall or whatever. And yeah, I yeah. still carry through that tradition to this day. I, I can't I, not I can't wash myself while the, the shower is still going. I have to turn it off. I um showered in a airbnb in i think it was in granada in spain once where the shower unit was in like the corner of the bathroom and it was sufficiently sized for people who are not my size and i had to walk face first into the shower 
wet the front half of me, walk out of the shower, rotate 180 <laughs> degrees, walk backwards into the shower and wet the back half of me, step out, soap, and then reverse the whole process to rinse. It was laborious. That's amazing. Support for Peak Speak is brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0, 4.0, across Australia. And I have one, and John has one, and Sam has one. You heard that right. The 4.0 joined over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping using the code PEAKSPEAK at manscaped.com. John, tell us your story. These arrived not that long ago uh, and having spent many years trying to use a pair of full-size hair clippers to (laughs) trim my balls, I have had more than one incident that involved several pieces of toilet paper and a bit of blood on the bathroom floor. So having a more versatile, much more manoeuvrable trimmer in hand makes life a lot easier. Blood on the floor. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of veins down there man it's very vascular that ball skin of ours (laughs) all right get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code peakspeak at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off free shipping worldwide unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with manscaped anyway deadlifts that's what we're talking about today we're talking about deadlifts and we'll probably extend this out over a couple of episodes yes i think Uh, so yeah so uh where to start where to start i think um you know, the reason I sort of wanted to bring up deadlifts and, and raise this discussion is just around um, it being a little bit unique to squat and bench press in the sense that we don't have the downward part, the eccentric component of the lift as the starting part, so to speak. Uh, and it changes the game a little bit when it comes to coaching, cueing, understanding this movement, you know, programming um, exercises to contribute to bettering this movement. Um, it's a little bit unique. So um, I guess the first question that I would ask, because this is the, you know, the thing that's probably most pertinent to producing a good deadlift is what would you define as the perfect starting position? Do you have guidelines that you refer to that you lean on when it comes to figuring out someone's starting position? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think the the framework of like what we're doing is the same regardless of whether we're pulling sumo or conventional because they are for the most part the same movement all the power is sort of coming from the same muscles we're largely in very similar positions the nuance is obviously a little bit different um like pretty much anything i talk about when we talk about things where you're standing on two feet i probably want your weight to be pretty well centered over the middle of your foot I want your shoulders to be sort of on top of the bar for the most part. I want your back to be reasonably flat. And then beyond that, uh, those sort of landmark positions, the rest of it's based on what the person looks like and their shape and size and, and those sort of things. So I think like any good lift, if you can identify a few key areas of that process that you can carry over as a principle into different body shapes and sizes and different executions and stuff like that, I think you're probably on the right path. Um, The deadlift is interesting because like you said, there's no eccentric phase to begin that. So a lot of people struggle with uh, the ability to organize themselves 
in space in order to get to the bar in a good position because you don't have that feedback of the of the weight itself on the bar. And I think that's the thing that sometimes people neglect to look at when it comes to setting a good start position is you have no feedback mechanism other than exactly what you can feel against the forces of gravity. You have to be able to organize yourself sufficiently uh, without that feedback. Exactly. So how you get yourself into position matters. And it's like for anyone out there who has struggled to sort of find the right bottom position uh, or try to manipulate themselves into the bottom position and can't work out why it's, why it's not working. Um, a good way to visualize it is can you imagine uh, sitting on the floor and then grabbing something to balance yourself and pulling yourself up, but only to the level of where you would be in the bottom of a squat and trying to organize yourself in a way that would mimic where you are in the bottom of a squat with a max weight. It's way yeah. easier to do that from the top down. Um, yep. So like how you get into the bottom position really starts from the top and how you load into it. And that can be quite tricky to wrap your head around sometimes. Uh, a lot of the problem solving for deadlifts during the movement will start at this point. Like a lot yeah. of fixing sticky lockouts, funky things happening around the knees, bars going in funny directions starts with your setup and your, and your starting position. Coming back to starting position, I love what you said about, you know, sumo and deadlift fundamentally being the same thing. I think that's a really good uh, way to look at it. And it helps us formulate um, a bit more of a gold standard to lean on when it comes to starting position, because the idea of starting position being unique to the individual is a little bit backwards because we're all doing the same lift. And so it is going to look different person to person, like you just said, uh, but there are some fundamental frameworks that we can lean on to, uh, yeah. from a mechanical perspective, get people into the right position. Um, when, when people have a picture of what the starting position is rather than like frameworks to lean on or principles to lean on, that's when you get people saying, no, your hips are too high, sit lower. Maybe their hips are that height and they're in the right starting position. They just look funny because they're built funny. Maybe their yep. hips are too low and they're in the right position because they're just built that, that way. You know, it's going to look different person to person, uh, but there should be some fundamentals underlying that. So you mentioned, uh, that the top-down approach to setting up is useful. Do you have, like, do you teach deadlifts for someone who's completely new from a top-down approach like that? Do you start with, like, a shorter range of motion from blocks or something like that and then move down, or do you go straight to teaching it from the floor? I go straight to teaching it from the floor, and then I might lean on a top-down approach for problem-solving. And I'll with sumo, I would go top-down approach even with elite-level lifters. Yeah. Like, Arranging yourself into the bottom position of a conventional for most lifters is probably one of the easiest skills that we have across the three lifts. Arranging yourself into the bottom position of a sumo, like understanding where your balance is, the tension you feel in your hips, uh, where your where what your torso and your shoulders are doing in space, I would say is one of the most difficult skills. Yeah. Um, and it's so, so, so much easier to learn by feeling it from the top down uh, than it is um, to, to try and teach, put into words, loading into it. It's also yeah. a lot easier to achieve from the top down than a conventional bottom position. Like doing a reverse conventional is very, very, very unnatural compared to a reverse sumo. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. One of the um, the tools that I definitely stole from you at some point a couple of years ago, uh, credited you a few times and then claimed as my own, uh, which is the only way to do things in the fitness industry. Absolutely. Is the idea of like a constant tension deadlift mm-hmm. and working on uh, that as both like a strength 
exercise, but also, so if, in, in my coaching framework, that's something I use as both an output exercise and a developmental exercise at varying points in a, in a training cycle. I think especially for sumo starting with a like constant tension approach to block deadlifts is really, really useful. And I'm way more interested in spending you know, however many weeks or, or, or training cycles it takes to develop the skill and the timing and the precision required for that lockout sequence in a sumo that is a little bit different to a conventional deadlift uh, and then developing that skill in an increasing range of motion rather than, like you said, trying to start straight from the floor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I would go further than that. Not only would I use the same purposes on so output exercise and developmental exercise, I also use it as an assessment tool like th there's yeah. so many people that will be listening to this that have tried sumo and just can't figure it out. Just can't do the bottom position. Um, that'll be like you, if you keep, you know, beating this dead horse of trying to get into the perfect bottom position of a sumo and you can't get there, you're going to arrive at one or two, one of two conclusions. Either I cannot do sumo. Uh, like I'm, I'm either too uncoordinated or unable to do sumo, or this is the way I have to do sumo. I have to buck the trend and do this like goofy half fucking conventional frog stance, weird ass deadlift. Mm. Um, neither of those are the truth. Maybe there's something missing there, which is like, you can't do it, but you just physically can't get into that position right now. And you have to develop that position. And so like, if someone's beating this dead horse and can't figure out why they can't do uh, sumo, doing it from the top down is going to tell me straight away, do you even have the capacity to achieve that, that position? And if you yeah. don't, then we can start to work on getting that capacity, which might then look like starting on blocks and, and taking the blocks away slowly over time or whatever it may be. Yeah. And that, that's definitely how I approach it. Even with people who, like people talk about the the sumo bottom position requiring like a lot of hip mobility, which I think it definitely does. But I've had people with more hip mobility than several other people combined. And that's not actually the only prerequisite to being able to create a good position there. It's mobility or access to that range of motion is important for sure. But the ability to control it and feel the tension in the right positions, like you said before, is the hard part. And that's where being able to essentially reverse the process of a deadlift and add in that eccentric portion becomes really useful in helping as a teaching tool. So if someone asks you, what should I do, sumo or conventional, what do you say? I teach everyone conventional to begin with uh, because I think, like you said, most people are pretty comfortable in that position or some variation of that position pretty quickly. In my experience, that's the one of, like you said, of the three that people kind of pick up the easiest. I think uh, once you understand at least how to do a conventional deadlift reasonably, we can look at sumo and I always tell people like, if you want to learn it, learn it. Like it's a, it's a great skill to learn. I think there's a lot of benefit in being able to do it, but unlike a lot of people, I'm not like, Hey, your limb lengths are exactly this percentage. And they, therefore you should be a sumo deadlifter because that's just fucking stupid for anyone other than Aaron Sim. And Aaron Sim's the <laughs> exception that proves the rule. Um, it's one of those things that I think too many people try and throw you into a, a bucket of like, hey, you look like this, so you'll be better at this type of deadlifting. And I just don't think that's the case. Um, my heaviest deadlift I've done, I did sumo and I did it while I was squatting equipped multiply squats in a relatively wide stance. So my sumo deadlift and my conventional, uh, my sumo deadlift and my squat were the same movement. Mm. So I was essentially just training the same pattern constantly from two different positions. 
but not everyone's like that and not everyone's going to be good at one or the other. Sometimes it's useful to learn both and figure out which one you feel more comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, you know, further than that, we can, we can simplify this, especially if your interest is strength. It's like if you can do both and you've given enough time to both, and you deadlift 200 conventional and 250 sumo. Yeah, pick, there, pick the There's your answer. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Especially if you're a powerlifter, it's like one plus one is three, maybe. Like just pick the fucking one that you lift more at. It becomes pretty simple. Um, so, do you, would you say the same thing for as someone who's not training for powerlifting? Um, for someone who's not training for powerlifting, I mean, like that, that opens up many contexts. I have yeah, yeah, for sure. like, should you be deadlifting in the first place? Um, and if you are deadlifting in the first place, um, what's the reason for that deadlift? In which case, for, uh, I'd say the general answer is going to land in, in conventional for the sake yeah. of like the same reason I wouldn't teach a clean and jerk and a snatch to a power lifter is like, yeah, there's a lot of benefits to this, but the skill requirement kind of outweighs the, yeah. the reason for you to do it. And sumo is such a skill and a skill. Yeah, is exactly. Fuck up. Cause it is hard. So many people fuck it up. It's like, <clears throat> it's the traditional answer to, and I've had this discussion with a bunch of people over the last like six months or so, a couple of people were like, Oh, should I investigate sumo? My answer is always like, yeah, definitely. But don't expect to start deadlifting sumo and suddenly see a big jump in your deadlift numbers because mm. sumo to a point is like relatively simple. You can just, you know, put your hands outside, your hands inside your feet, kind of bend over a bit and pick it up. And you're like, oh, yeah, cool. I know how to sumo deadlift now, but that's not actually the case. It is to do it really well and to get the most benefit out of it from a powerlifting context, you have to be able to execute the skill at a really high proficiency. And that, like you said, just takes time. Yeah, and, and put it this way: like, if if conventionals feel wrong, it's because you're doing them wrong. If conventionals yeah, yeah. hurt, it's because you're doing them wrong. If um, conventional, if the gap between your conventional and the sumo is ginormous, all of the same issues that are creating the pain or creating the feelings of badness in your conventional exist in your sumo and will be rate limits. Yes. Um, so even though you might be able to express your strength so much better in that movement, those rate limiters will be there whether you can see them or not um, to, you know, to the untrained eye. Uh, and so getting good at conventional for a sumo lifter, is, I would say, is a requirement. Yeah. Do you think it's the other way around then? No. Yeah. Not at all. Because of that, because of that skill difference, um, one of the biggest aspects here as well, and this is another reason sumo pullers should do a lot of conventional. Um, you know, unless you're doing deadlift only, you're probably taking into consideration the other lifts uh, and especially squats. And so, like one reason why so many people start to feel a little bit better in a in a sumo if their conventional sucks or it just feels wrong or bad is because they don't have the control through their torso to be more flexed. They don't, they don't have the control through their torso to be more bent forward. And you need that in a squat. So if that's your limitation and you stop doing conventional and you only do super upright sumos, generally your squat will slow down in its progress because you mm. lose some stimulation there. Yeah. So, and again, that's mirrors my thoughts exactly. I think a big sumo deadlift is built off a big conventional deadlift, but certainly not the other way around. Mm. And in your, in your example there, uh, again, to talk about my own experience, I squatting equipped had like a reasonably upright torso because of the angle, the width of my uh, stance. Mm. And what that meant is uh, again, not only was like the hip movement in terms of shin angle, 
width, uh, those sort of things the same, but the torso angle is basically the same. So I actually really got like two for one out of that. Mm. But even then, that big the big deadlift I hit in training when I fucked a meat peak up uh, was a result of a ton of conventional volume in the lead up to that. Like I did a heap of beltless conventional work that served as the underpinning for that strength that then I just was able to transfer into the skill. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of the best way to go about setting up an effective deadlift program, do you have like prerequisites in terms of exercises or things you're thinking about that are about building the deadlift other than deadlifting? Um, so like my general approach with this stuff is always going to be, you're only going to fix the deadlift with the deadlift. Um, yep. But like it certainly um, it's really, really, really important for people to have a very clear cut logical approach as to why they're doing any given exercise and not just repeat the rhetoric that they read on Instagram or whatever. Like it's really easy to see someone doing a double pause deadlift off a deficit uh, with the justification of like, this really helps my position. You have to ask, does it, how does it, how is that helping your position? What is this actually doing for you? Um, And if there is an issue with your position during the upward phase of the deadlift, something's gone wrong in your starting position or something's gone wrong along the way uh, with this idea of your torso being forward that needs to be addressed. Uh, And so like most of my problem solving stuff is going to be hanging around that um, in terms of like, can you, can you get into the right position? If you can, we can manipulate this. We can uh, modulate the intensity by doing like a tempo to the knee. We can do a deficit. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of pause deadlifts. They don't make a great deal of sense to my system and how I apply it. They can be used effectively absolutely they're a way to make things harder for the sake of making things harder and i'm a big fan of that for the sake of like getting more volume in without more load uh, but i don't use pause deadlifts in my programming I, I use a lot of tempo deadlifts a lot of tempo from the top down so tempo rdls to blocks tempo deadlifts uh from the the ground to the knee if you can maintain a perfect perfect position but it's all done with the deadlift itself primarily yeah yeah i think that yeah, what that about point about well, I was just going to say, I think that point about pause deadlifts is one that we've certainly touched on before because I feel the same. I think the pause deadlift is one that is so often absolutely butchered in favor of adding more load to the bar. Like you'll see someone stop in a pause deadlift and then rock back onto their heels and arch their back to hold that position and then rock forward and finish that movement. It's like, man, is that actually doing anything useful to the organization of your actual deadlift? Like how are you not just actually deprogramming one end of that spectrum and pushing you in the other direction? Um, I, I feel very similar ab- about a lot of it. Um, I think the, the tempo to the knees, uh, sort of constant tension stuff to the floor, those sort of things serve a, a big part in what I'm doing because I find, like you said, so often that initiation off the floor is the thing that gets really badly butchered. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people talk about this idea of pulling the slack out of the bar or taking the tension, but I don't think people do a very good job of explaining what that means to someone who's never actually appreciated, like actually felt even like, you know, feeling like a good deadlift bar flex in your hands like that. If you've never experienced that, understanding what we're talking about when we say that can be a really sort of esoteric thing. The analogy I use is, um, is driving in the wet is the idea that, you know, you're sitting in a, 
a big V8 at the traffic lights in the wet, you dump your foot on the accelerator when the light goes green and the car's going to move forward, but you're not going to have much of a say in what direction it's moving <laughs> in. And there's going to be a lot of power taken out of that big V8 that's not getting transferred into the wheels and mm. into the ground. And then if you take the same V8, the same situation, you find a gradual approach to the acceleration to the point where you get that traction moment and then you can dump your foot, well, then obviously you're going to be in much more control. And I think in the deadlift, that's what happens when you yank on the bar, right? It's that mm. burnout in the wet. You're, you're going from this system that has no tension in it because we haven't had the advantage of the eccentric, the loaded eccentric to put tension into the system and to give you the appropriate tension in the appropriate parts of the body. And so you go from this tensionless system to applying maximum force to it and your body's just going to self-organize in a fraction of a second into a position that can effectively apply the force that you're trying to transfer. Mm. And in most cases, that looks like you changing position from an, you know what appears to be a really solid start position to suddenly is this rounded back, you know, protracted shoulder blade, shitty deadlift position that inevitably leads to a really fucking miserable lockout. And it's a miserable lockout, not because you suck at lockouts. It's a miserable lockout because you fucked it up off the floor, like you said before. Mm. So understanding that idea of how to gradually apply force to the bar and create tension in a way is something that a lot, a lot of people in my experience, are, it, like it's a foreign concept. They haven't done anything like that before. Um, I like, like tug of war is another good analogy because, again, yeah, yeah. in tug of war, you you don't just pick up the rope and start pulling. Everyone takes the strain and then you go. Um, and I've found then combining that story of like, here's what we're trying to think about with something like a constant tension deadlift or a tempo to the knee deadlift, like all those things that constrain it in a way that make it really hard off the floor, mm. make it a really, really useful teaching tool that then you can graduate into like, okay, well, this is just how you approach your actual deadlift. And I think a lot of people misconstrue this as meaning like it has to be slow off the floor or like I don't want you to pull really fucking hard. Like, no, I, I want you to be able to exert maximum force mm -hmm. and get maximum transfer of that force. For sure. And the only way you can do that is to be able to find that tension point first and then fucking hammer it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I think um, two big points that you touched on, I think are going to be great segues into part two of this, which is, you know, talking about pulling the slack out of the bar, that's a cue that I never, ever, ever use or avoid as much as possible. So I want to talk yeah, about I want to talk about cueing in general, but cueing that next week and also the whole thing around rounded backs during deadlifts. So maybe let's let's end it there and pick up on that in the next episode. Sweet. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>